Hey, thanks for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago. If you want to know more information about us, you can head to our website at RenewalChicago.com. I pray today that this message is a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. Um, we are, as I mentioned, continuing in our uh, series on the Psalms this week. Um, we heard from Pastor D last week. We heard from Tony the week before that. And as I was preparing our psalm, we're going to look at Psalm 148 today, but as I was preparing, I was listening to another preacher uh, recommended to me by Pastor D, actually, uh, Crawford Loritz. He's Brian Loritz's dad. Brian has spoken at our church a couple of times. He's good friends with Pastor D. And Dr. Loritz, Crawford Loritz, uh, was talking about the Psalms, and he said something that really resonated with me, and it, made, it reminded me that this is one of the things that I love, personally, I love about Christianity, and that continues after years to draw me to Christianity. Crawford Loritz said, in the Psalms, there are, uh, all, there's often on display, in the overwhelming, the, the vast percentage of the Psalms, there's on display paradox. And in Loritz's terms, he said, the, the, the psalmist often begins with, uh, by being under the process of pressure. That's a quote from Crawford Loritz. He says, process of pressure. But then the psalm moves often very quickly to the proper perspective on pressure. So we got paradox, pressure, and perspective. I can't alliterate like uh, Dr. Loritz can, but his, his point is really clear, right? That, that in the psalms, the thing that I love, and in the pages of the Bible, we have real people engaged in real problems, going through real suffering, dealing with their real sin, and they're crying out to God in an authentic way. And I love that, and it, and it paints this picture of paradox. We have normal, everyday people, some of them in the Bible, some of them trust God, some of them don't trust God, some of them are deciding whether or not to trust God, but in all things, we don't, we're not left with kind of a superficial or cliched view of human life. We, we actually see depicted something different, something very rich, and it's something that I continue to draw on as a Christian. This is really rich depiction of Christian life, that it, that it includes pain and suffering, and that it, it turns in hope and in praise. And that is exactly what we see in the Psalms. It's exactly what we've seen the last couple of weeks. Did, did you notice, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, um, Pastor D and Tony both weren't just reading and teaching from the Psalms. They were engaged. In other words, the, the Psalm the words of the Psalms resonated in their hearts in such a way that they were participating with the psalmist in prayer, in lament, and in praise. This, I, I love this kind of stuff, and it continues to draw me to the Psalms and to Christianity. Now, I, I say all of this today because one of the things that we want to do is remember that the Psalms put on display paradox. And it's important that we remember that because Psalm 148 is a different kind of psalm. You might read Psalm 148 and mistakenly um, presume that Christianity just is talking about praise and worship. And you might get a one-dimensional view because this psalm is praise top to bottom praise uh, from the beginning to the end. It doesn't put on display the kind of paradox that we see in most of the other psalms. But if we're looking at the whole psalm book, the whole Psalter, Psalm 1 through 150, what we see is it actually follows the same pattern as a lot of the individual psalms. We see the psalmist under pressure, and then we see the psalmist conclude with proper perspective, with hope and with praise and with worship. And as we draw our uh, psalm series 
to a conclusion, we want to do the same thing the psalm book does. We want to conclude with the proper perspective, with worship and praise and adoration. And so we're concluding with Psalm 148, which is uniformly a psalm of praise. So uh, you, you might read Psalm 148 and mistakenly assume that Christian worship is just something of praise, just like you might if you read Psalm 88 in isolation. You might conclude that Christian worship only is lament. No, no, no. We want to see the whole picture. There is a paradox here. And this whole Psalter ends with five psalms of praise. They each begin and end with the phrase, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. The final five psalms. Why? Because the psalm book ends the same way most psalms end, with that perspective that Dr. Loritz talked about. So, we're going to read Psalm 148, which is part of, as I mentioned, the part of the entire Psalter. Um, Psalm 148, if you've got your Bible or your Bible app, uh, it'd be great to open it up. If not, that's okay, we'll throw it up on the screen here. Um, if you do have your Bible, this, is a, this might be a fun one for you to even mark in the margins and, um, I don't know, sketch out some stuff as we walk through this psalm together. Psalm 148, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth. You great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word, mountains and hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above heaven and earth. He has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. And as I mentioned, here we have unequivocal, unabashed, unadulterated, unfiltered, just praise to God from top to bottom, beginning to end in this psalm. And if we are Worshiping through the Psalms, as our series title suggests, what a great way to conclude or to draw to conclusion this series. And what, if we are worshiping through the Psalms, what a great time to ask, well, what is Christian worship? It's on display very plainly right here in this Psalm. And so we're going to ask uh, three questions. We're going to ask, what is the character of Christian worship? What does Psalm 148 have to say about the character of Christian worship? What is the reason for Christian worship? And what is the result of Christian worship? Psalm 148 speaks to all of these, the character, the reason, and the result of Christian worship. So, first, the character of Christian worship. This psalm, like each of the final five psalms, as I mentioned, begins and ends with praise the Lord. This is an incredible phrase because it's the phrase in Hebrew, the the original language that the psalms were written in, it's a phrase from which we derive the word hallelujah. Now, if you've been in our church or in other churches where we sing praise songs and you sing hallelujah and you have a vague idea that this is some kind of Christian praise word, now you know what it means. It literally means praise the Lord, and it's, it's a specific word for the Lord. It's, it's God's name. Pastor D mentioned this name last week. It's, this is saying specifically, praise be to the Christian God. 
the, the, the Almighty, the Yahweh. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So we start that way, we end that way, and in between these two hallelujah statements, we, we continue, and it's just phrase after phrase after phrase that we just read of praise and of adoration and of worship. And so if we're asking, well, what is the character of Christian worship? Certainly from this psalm, we can say it is exuberant, right? It's exuberant. It's, it's overflowing. And in its exuberance, it overflows into the public life. In other words, it is on display for all to see. As a matter of fact, it's creation itself puts worship on display, according to this psalm. Mountains and hills and trees and valleys and in, in space and sun and moon and planets and stars and all of these things, people, all the social order, they're all turned and praise in this united song to the Creator. Its exuberance puts it on display to the public. Now, um, it's interesting. Many traditional uh, societies, cultures, tend to be a bit, a bit shy about putting on display like lament or grief uh, problems, suffering. It's like putting on display your problems kind of is, it's too vulnerable, it's too shameful in many traditional societies, right? Well, likewise, in many progressive societies, putting on display any kind of Christian or religious worship is kind of off limits. It's, it feels like a power play. It's something that might be bigoted or over against somebody else. And sadly, it, it is true. We can look in history and see some public displays of, of religious worship that are power plays, but authentic Christian worship isn't a power play. No, no, no. Its exuberance necessarily has it spill out into public life. It just it becomes public. It, it interrupts your public life, just like real Christian worship interrupts your private life. Who you are when no one's watching, your Christian worship should disrupt that. And your Christian worship should disrupt your public life. It, it overflows into the public space, into the public domain. And that's what we see in this psalm. So if we say, what is the character of Christian worship? Its exuberance overflows into the public square. It makes a difference in public life. Traditional or religious people tend to be shy about displays of lament. Humanistic people tend to be shy about public displays of religious worship. Traditionalists can be threatened by displays of weakness uh, progressives can be threatened by displays of strength. The Christian is threatened by neither. Now, this is so freeing, my friends. It was threatened by neither. The disciple, the true Christian worshiper, has the security <laughs> to be authentic in public with his problems and his struggles. The, the, the true worshiper of Jesus has such deep-seated joy that he is also public with his worship with his adoration, with his exuberance toward God. He says, praise be to Yahweh, praise the Lord, praise God. You know, uh, my, my wife and I, every once in a while, we, we have dinner, we have a meal, we have coffee with somebody who's new, kind of an acquaintance of ours, a neighbor, something like that. And just reading this and thinking about uh, the Christian as a worshiper of God is just, it, he is necessarily, he has to have it on display it made me recall some of these dinners and coffees and meals that we've had with people as we're getting to know them because almost always, within very short order, we re realize that we've got to talk about our Christian faith. I mean, it's just part of our story. And it's not just part of our privatized lives. It's part of our public lives. And we don't want to beat somebody over the head with it. We don't want to treat anybody as an evangelistic project. But we have to 
it just naturally comes out in conversation. So here we see the Christian worship, that Christian worship is drawn out into the public space. What is the character of Christian worship? It is many things. Two characteristics that are in this psalm is that it is, it is exuberant and it becomes public. Second, what is the reason for Christian worship? So we've got what is the character, what is the reason for Christian worship? Why worship God? Or why, I'll be more specific, why worship the Christian God? Why hallelujah? Why praise be to Yahweh? Why not praise be to um, sports or work or family or achievements or dreams or a million other things? Uh, You may have heard us here at Renewal Church a number of times, leaders have talked about how every human heart is worshiping something right? Every, this, is the, this is the Christian worldview about what worship is. This is to say everybody in their hearts has a highest thing, something to which they appeal to help them achieve happiness, to find the good life, to find security. So everybody, nobody is immune from this. You can't, you can't say, well, some people worship and I choose not to. No, no, everybody has an ultimate thing in their hearts, and Christianity calls this worship. So the question for us is, why worship God? What is the reason for worship? Um, the ancients, uh, ancient societies, uh, the, the context that the psalmist was writing in, often they had a myriad deities, right? Gods and goddesses, and this only seemed to accelerate from the time of the psalmist in through the Greco-Roman period. You've, you've uh, read about Greek mythology, right? There's just gods and goddesses for everything, every town and village and city and nation. There are gods and goddesses for um, harvest and fertility and uh, war and prosperity. There's just gods and goddesses for everything, right? Now, it's very common for somebody like you or me, a modern person, to look back on that and think how primitive of them. But we would, we're, we're too quick to think that because it's just, consider for a moment. Is it different? The, the ancients may have named the god or goddess when they worship prosperity. They may name and personify that god and build a temple to them. But is that any different from worshiping money today? The, the, the ancients may have named the god of fertility and uh, given him a temple and personified him or her, but is that any different from worshiping a god of sex or of, of holding sex in, in relationship in the highest place in your heart? The ancients may have personified and named a god of power or of military or something like that, of war. Is that any different than, than worshiping or holding in the highest place power in your heart right now? What's more primitive? At least the ancients knew they were worshiping gods, right? Today we we pretend and we're delusional about what we are worshiping too often. And the psalmist says, what if, what if we're worshiping the right thing? Now, directly in Psalm 148, he answers the question, why Christian worship? Why worship the Christian God? So we've got all of these phrases. Perhaps you noticed in the psalm, the first section is, is very much about the heavens. You know, he's suns and moons and stars and heavenly beings and the hosts, right? And then he moves into uh, earth, uh, the praise from the earth, all of the, the mountains and trees and people and everything else. And in all of that, two times, he says, praise the Lord, and then why? Verse 5, for he commanded and they were created. And then verse 13, why? For his majesty is above heaven and earth. 
So in other words, we have all of this created order, this natural order, heaven and earth and everything in it, and, and, and God's majesty is above all of it. We have um, everything that was made that was made. Verse 5, he created. And so the psalmist is appealing to the most fundamental reason to worship God. He is creator. In other words, without God, there is nothing. Without God, we're not having this conversation. There's no camera. There's no screen. There's no you. There's no me. We're not talking about Christian worship. He is the creator. And so he, the, the psalmist is saying he's appealing to the most ultimate of ultimate things. And he's saying, what if the most ultimate thing in your heart is the actual ultimate thing over all creation? Isn't that right worship? It's a great question. It's a great question, and it challenges us. You know, uh, about 20, 25 years ago-ish, there's a group of uh, ministers in Australia, and they just set out for this, to do this project where they said, we need a better tool, a better method to help Christians share their, their story and the good news about Jesus with others. And part of the reason they felt that way is they had surveyed a lot of the existing tools, if you've grown up in churches, maybe you've heard of some of these tools or methods of sharing the good news, you know, like the Roman road or the bridge illustration or the diagnostic questions, these kinds of ways of introducing Christianity to a new person, right? Anyway, this, this group in Australia looked at those and they just found that, that they didn't, they were good, but they didn't quite work with the newest generation of people. And they said the reason is that all of these tools presumed a, a, a universal knowledge or like kind of a baseline knowledge about that, that, that there is a God, and they said, we need to back up from there. And where did they back up to? They backed up to the same place that the psalmist backed up to, to creator. Why worship God? Because he made you. He made everything. Without him, nothing is made. He is the ultimate thing. He is, his majesty, as verse 13 says, is above heaven and earth. So we have, again, the character of Christian worship is exuberant and it overflows into public life. The reason for Christian worship, because he is creator. Without him, there is nothing at all. And then finally, we move to the result of Christian worship. Or if I can phrase the question a bit more crassly, so what, right? The result of Christian worship, so what? You know, this is a beautiful piece of ancient literature, of Hebrew wisdom literature. It's, it's well-crafted, it's well-constructed, it's amazing that it's been preserved for us. It, it gives uh, characteristics of Christian worship, it gives um, also a reason for Christian worship, but at the end of the day, what difference does it make if I worship this or I worship that? What, so what? What is the result of Christian worship? Now, this is what is interesting about this psalm. Really, I've talked about the character of, I've talked about the reason for, but those are secondary points. The, the, the big thrust of this psalm is actually the result of Christian worship. The whole structure of this psalm, the, the, the recurring theme of this psalm is the result of Christian worship. Um, I mentioned the structure, how it's, it starts with heaven and it moves to earth. You can see the psalmist is, is going out of his way to list everything, to list everything that he can think of, right? Uh, uh, the Look at it again. 
Fauna and flora, both wild and domestic, uh, patterns of weather, planets and stars. He names things beyond the material world, things that we barely have comprehension for, like heavenly hosts, angels. And he goes on to name the categories of the social order, calling out many of the ways by which people organize themselves, rich and poor, male and female, young and old, rulers and nations, and citizenry. And and then he goes into uh, the substance of creation itself, plants and animals and wind and earth and water. This is amazing. It's almost like the psalmist is such a gifted uh, prayer song writer that he turns a list of things into a poem, into a song. And what is his point? It'd be easy to see all of these categories of things and to think that his point is to highlight the diversity, the beautiful diversity of the created order, but that's not the point. In fact, it's the opposite. Psalm 148 emphasizes a diverse creation that is unified in a single song of praise. He's, he's drawing on all of this radical diversity that's in, in the created order, and he's saying, look at how it is unified in one song of praise to one creator. It's amazing. What is the result? What is the result, or a result at least, of Christian worship? It's this radical unity, this, this power to draw together things that are so disparate and so diverse and so different Drawn together, classes, think about this, classes and genders and ethnicities and partisans and generations drawn together in one song with one melody, with many harmonies and praise to one God. The result of Christian worship is what uh, the late Bible scholar Derek Kidner called the choir of creation. That's what's on display here. In Psalm 148, the choir of creation. And here's a, here's a quote from Derek Kidner. He says this, In these few lines, there emerges the only potential bond between the extremes of humankind, a joyful preoccupation with God. In these few lines, there emerges the only potential bond between the extremes of humankind, a joyful preoccupation with God. Now listen, in other words, the prayer of Psalm 148 points to both the supreme end of created diversity, unity and praise, and the supreme means within, for deep unity, within created diversity. Worship. Praise and worship are the means in the end. It, It draws people together and it gives them a glorious, like, end game to glorify and worship. The creator. Now, I mean this in a deep way. This, this runs the risk. I, I started on purpose at the very beginning of this, citing that the Psalms show paradox, right? When, when we read a Psalm that is just praise from top to bottom, and I say, look at how this can join the, the, join the extremes of humankind. When, if that's the message of this Psalm, it runs the risk of seeming superficial or not seeming nuanced enough or not dealing with pain and suffering. But my friends, it is. You've got to take the Psalm book as a whole. This is the psalmist's conclusion after 147 Psalms before it. He's saying this is the, this is the best hope that we've got to, to unite the extremes of humankind. It's this, a joyful preoccupation with the Creator. We learn here that even very good proposals, and and we should have good proposals, and we should engage in good proposals, and we should join hands with good proposals with people who are not Christians. Good proposals for living in an exponentially varied world. Even good proposals are at best, at best, secondary 
to the singular design of participation in creation's song to her creator. We learn that this is the, this is the ultimate end. This is how unity is ultimately found. It's not cheap unity. It is expensive unity. It is chosen. It is somebody who worships God so much that, that it, it is exuberant and it overflows into public life. In Wilmington, North Carolina, in 1898, if I'm remembering right, 1898, Wilmington, North Carolina, there was a white race riot. It was devastating. It was gross. Uh, injuries and, and killings and everything else. And there's a, a black leader at the time, a Christian leader named Francis Grimke. He arrived in Wilmington just, just after the white race riot, riot ended. And he did a series of sermons uh, to a, a crowd largely, not exclusively, but largely of black people who were just on the brink of total despair. And as he spoke, he landed the same place <laughs> that the psalmist lands. As he spoke, he started the same place that the psalmist starts. You know, his series of seven or eight sermons over, several, over seven or eight weeks of Sundays, he, he begins, and, and through the, the bulk of those sermons, what, what is he doing? He's doing what the psalmist does. He, Francis Grimke, put on display the process of pressure. It was lament. He, he cited the myriad forces that were against any kind of real racial justice, right? And so you have Francis Grimke doing all of these things, and then he turns in those last couple of sermons, the last two sermons in this series, he turns, like the psalmist, to praise and worship and hope, unequivocally to Christian hope. This is a quote from Grimke from the second to last sermon that he preached in Wilmington in 1898. He said this, why do we have hope? Because God reigns. He is pointing, he is turning to exactly the same thing that the psalmist says. What's the reason to worship because God is creator. Grimke arrives at the same conclusion. He says, why do we have hope? Because God reigns. Quote, there is hope for the oppressed, for the downtrodden, for all, listen to these prophetic words, for the downtrodden, for all upon whose necks the iron heel of oppression rests. He arrives at the same conclusion that the psalmist so many thousands of years before arrived at. There is hope because God reigns. And then he gives a second reason. He says the second reason that there is hope is because we have prayer. Now, the whole book of Psalms is, is a book of prayer songs to God. It is people pouring out their hearts to God in prayer, in petition, in praise, in complaint, in lament, in worship, all of it. And Grimke arrives at that same thing. He said, the Psalms point us to prayer and prayer gives us hope. And this is, this is interesting. According to Grimke, prayer is the beginning of activism. Why? Because prayer calls on God to act, and it calls on God's people to activism. And in turn, they turn and worship. Why do we have hope? Why is, the, why is it not cheap and, and superficial to say that the, 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 the greatest hope for unity among the extremes of humankind is a joyful preoccupation with God because God reigns and because we speak to him and because he listens? True unity of people whose hearts share the same subject of worship, the highest thing, the ultimate thing in their hearts is the actual ultimate thing over the cosmos. And when this happens, real unity, not cheap, not 
anodyne corporate statement that you get in your email about justice or unity or diversity or something. No, no, no. Expensive, difficult, and true unity among the extremes of humankind. It's a unity of people who draw the strength from the creator God. Uh, Verse 14, I love this verse. It's one of those verses that we miss because it uses a Hebrew metaphor that we don't use. It says, God has what? Has raised up a horn for his people. The metaphor is horn. It means strength. God has given his people strength. And this is so remarkable. What is the strength? What does it say? Worship. The praise of his people is their strength because it has the power to unify across the extremes of humankind. Extraordinary. It's like a psalm written for today. The psalmist's prayer is not less. It's not less than unity in the midst of diversity, but it is much more. The psalmist's prayer is that all people everywhere would be joyfully preoccupied with God and consequently live harmoniously along the entire spectrum of created and experienced diversity. In this regard, this psalm, the whole Psalter and so many individual psalms with that paradox they're, they're miniatures of the Christian life. Under pressure, the process of pressure, and the turning and proper perspective of praise and adoration. What is the character of Christian worship? It is exuberant. It overflows into public life. What is the reason for Christian worship? Because he is creator. Without him, there is nothing at all. And what is the result of Christian worship? All of the created order united in one song to her creator. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, we turn to you and we pray, we too say, like this psalm, we we begin with saying, praise the Lord, praise be to your name. We ask, O God, that you would help us, you would heal us of all of 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 the counterfeit things that we place in the ultimate place in our heart, that we would practice real Christian worship. I pray for those who are listening right now who are not yet believing Christians, that you would draw them into belief, that you would help them to see the power, the real, like life in, in real public life power of worshiping the Almighty God. And we say together as a church, we ask that this deep flourishing of creation united across diversity, would come to pass. From the depths of the seas to the heights of the heavens and across your peoples, may it be so, O Lord, starting now and in fullness forevermore. Amen. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast today. I pray that it was a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. I look to see you at one of our services at 9.30 or 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Take care. God bless you.